Differences and divisions. Do our differences have to lead to our divisions? Um, this is the question that we've been asking for the last few weeks, and this is the question that we'll continue to ask for the next few weeks as well. Um, this is um, a question that feels really pertinent, uh, probably at all points in time, but particularly in this era that we find ourselves in, like globally, but also nationally, and as we've talked about over the last few weeks, um, within our denomination even, um, and what it means to, to be together in the midst of all of that. And so we're, we're wrestling with this question of do our differences have to lead to our division? And like, I'll, I'll show my cards, like, I don't think it has to lead to our division. Um, and so we've been looking at some, some passages from the New Testament, some examples where there was difference that was happening and the potential of division and they chose another path forward. Um, to be honest, like, you know, I, I picked these passages, so like, you know, I'm stacking the deck a bit, but I, I hope you trust me that like doing so reflects like the, the bigger, broader, arching narrative of the New Testament as it relates to the church and what God is wanting to do in Christ through the church. And so um, I hope that as we wrestle with this series that we can come to a place where we can hold these differences in, in tension and yet recognize the unity that we have together and something that's way bigger than ourselves, something that's way bigger than our thoughts, our beliefs, our perspectives, but a, a togetherness, a unity that's held together in Christ himself. So um, as we get ready to jump into uh, this morning's sermon, uh, I invite you to join me for a word of prayer. Loving God, thank you uh, for the gift of this community. Uh, again, on, on Pentecost, on, on the church's birthday, we're especially grateful for this local representation that is uh, First Mennonite. Thank you for our siblings uh, that, that get to join us here together. Thank you for uh, the gift of Zoom that we can be connected with those that may not be able to be here in person. God, we're grateful for the gift of the church. And God, on, on this Pentecost Sunday, we're, we're, we're grateful for your spirit as well. And so now as we turn to the scriptures and wrestle with them, uh, we yield ourselves to your spirit. And we ask that your spirit would lead us, guide us, shape us, inform us more and more into the image of Jesus. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. At the beginning of my freshman year of college, uh, I was introduced to somebody that we will call Jerry, and I will do my best to refer to him as Jerry, although I slipped up a couple times already this morning uh, talking through it. But Jerry is who I was introduced to. And Jerry uh, lived on the other end of the hallway from me my fr in my freshman dorm. So, like, you walk in uh, up to my, my third floor in the, the uh, dorm called Oakwood Hall, and you can go to the left to the right. So we lived on the left side, and the hallway was one long hallway, and I lived at one end, and Jerry lived at, th at the other end of the hallway. And it's ironic that Jerry and I lived on opposite ends of the hallway because Jerry and I also lived on opposite ends of the ideological spectrum, regardless of what the topic was. You could throw out any topic, or even like our very postures towards the world around us, and we found ourselves living on the opposite end of the spectrum. Now, as you can imagine, because you're a human being and you find yourself on the opposite end of the spectrum from other people, this led to a good bit of like tension between us. <laughs> this led to a good bit of like animosity between us. And this led to a good bit of like conflict between us. And when there's the presence of tension and animosity and conflict, all of this bubbles up and to the point where there's a good bit of judgment between Jerry and I. Maybe I should speak for myself, because there was an awful lot of judgment coming from my end of the hallway towards Jerry's end of the hallway. 
But uh, as our freshman year was ending, I, uh, I, I began to keep a helpful perspective, which is a perspective that most of us as rational human beings will have, and that is, like, I will just do my best to avoid Jerry as much as possible. <laughs> I'm getting a new dorm, I'm getting a new room, and hopefully, like, Jerry will be on the other side of campus as he is on the other end of the, spect- the ideological spectrum from me, right? I get to my sophomore year, I move into my room, and I open my door, and who is not at the other end of the hallway, but now across the daggum hallway from me, other than Jerry. (laughs) And then, to make matters worse, uh, at the end of that first semester, I was going to be uh, going on a semester abroad, and I was going to be traveling to New Zealand, Australia, and China, and I was like, this is great. Like, I will literally be as far away from Jerry as I can possibly be, but wouldn't you know it, out of the 15 people that went on that semester abroad, Jerry was one of them. It was at that moment that I knew that this loving mystery that we call God, that holds all things together, has a pretty sick sense of humor, right? I was trying to get as far away from Jerry, and there Jerry was traveling with me. Uh, No matter how hard I tried, I could not get away from Jerry, and perhaps you have people in your life that are similar to this, right? Perhaps you have that cousin, that aunt, that uncle, that at family gatherings, like, is always sitting next to you, like filling you in on like the most wildish and outlandish conspiracy theories that they've been reading up on, right? And no matter how much you devise a plan to like create a buffer between you and that aunt, uncle, cousin, something always shifts around, right? Like your, your, your sibling agrees to sit next to you and then like somehow their child starts crying so they leave and that, that aunt, uncle, cousin's right there and they're like, hey, let me tell you what I've been reading about on the, the, the interwebs lately, right? And you're like, oh gosh, why? Why? I tried so hard. Or perhaps it's a neighbor. And you try and do good in your community. You try to do good in the world. Maybe you're out putting up one of our, no matter where you're from, I'm glad you're my neighbor signs. And as you're actively putting it in the ground, you look and you see the complete opposite message in their yard. And they smile and wave, howdy, neighbor, right? Or perhaps it's a coworker. And like you've made peace with the fact that you have to be with this person nine to five, but then you begin to see him at like your grocery store. And you're like, oh my goodness. Or perhaps like even worse, you see him at like your favorite park. And perhaps even worse, your kids become friends at the park and now they want to do play dates and you have to exist with this person outside of work, right? No matter how hard you try, you can't get away from th- this person. Now the difference between these examples and my example with Jerry is Jerry like claimed to be following Jesus with all that he had. Jerry uh, belonged to the same sort of Christian college. Jerry lived on my floor, which meant that Jerry and I were in some pretty intense Christian community together, which meant that in some strange divine way, he was like my sibling, and I couldn't get away from him. And while at at that point in my life, I don't know that I would have said this, but looking back with some years and hopefully some growth of maturity, (laughs) I'm really grateful for the fact that I couldn't get away from Jerry. And here's why. In Ephesians chapter 2, our author, who tradition says is Paul, but there's reasons others think that it wasn't Paul, but we'll say Paul for the sake of ease. Paul is writing to this church in the city of Ephesus, and he begins to write about this big, bold, beautiful vision for this thing that he calls the church. And as he's describing this big, bold, beautiful vision for this thing that he calls the church, spoiler alert, He also acknowledges that we may not always get along, we may not always see eye to eye, and we may have different perspectives and experiences and uh, 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 preferences for how we go about being the church together. (laughs) So uh, the church of Ephesus was in the city of Ephesus, which was this, um, this diverse city. 
And so you have a, a church community, probably like the only one within this diverse city. And so you can imagine that this church community itself was also quite diverse. And the diversity that we see happening within this church in the city of Ephesus is that it's filled with both um, Jewish followers of Jesus, so people who grew up in this ethnic sort of way of being Jewish, and Gentile followers of Jesus. Now, when we talk about Gentiles and Jews, we often think of them as two separate groups. But remember, when we talk about the Gentiles, we're talking about the rest of the world, everybody who's not Jewish. So Gentiles themselves are this incredibly diverse group. We're talking like anywhere from Greeks or Romans or Egyptians or any other ethnicity besides the Jewish people. So we find ourselves in this church in Ephesus, which is a a diverse church made up predominantly of Gentile Christians. So a radically diverse group and then Jewish followers of Jesus. And much of what Paul is talking about in this letter is trying to help them figure out how to get along. (laughs) Because as you can imagine, because perhaps we have some dynamics of this from time to time in our life, you you can imagine like if we were a fly on the wall, we have the Gentile followers of Jesus in one corner thinking we do it right and they do it wrong. And if we were a fly on the other side of the wall, you can imagine the Jewish followers of Jesus coming together and saying we do it right and they do it wrong. (laughs) And so much of what Paul is trying to do is help them figure out how to get along. And one of the ways that he does this is by presenting this big, bold, beautiful vision of what the church is and what it means for us to be part of this. So at the beginning of chapter 2, he articulates eloquently and beautifully like the good news of Jesus. And then starting in verse 11, he says, So then, remember that at one time, You Gentiles, so now he's talking specifically to the Gentile followers of Jesus, that you Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision. So you notice this distinction here, the uncircumcision and the circumcision. So fair warning, we are going to be talking about circumcision here, which I know most of us woke up and thought, I hope we talk about circumcision at church, right? (laughs) And if you're like, oh, dear goodness, please stop talking about it. We will in just a second, but we have to talk about it for a second. So circumcision was a really, really big deal within uh, the Jewish uh, worldview, particularly for the men, because this served as an identity marker, like quite literally like a physical identity marker of who was in, of who belonged to the people of God, that, that in their very flesh, they bore a mark that said that I am part of the people of God. And so you, you have this church community, which remember that the, the church, the, the way of Jesus, the... the um, Uh, was seen particularly as a sect of Judaism. So you have these Jewish followers of Jesus who are claiming like circumcision is still an important thing because this is like part of our identity of what it means to be part of the people of God. But then you also have all of these Gentile believers who apparently up to this point had never been circumcised and probably weren't like, you know, ready to jump in line and get circumcised as adults saying like, no, like, when we understand Jesus, like Jesus invites us as we are, like we don't actually have to become Jewish to follow Jesus. And so we begin to see this conflict. We begin to see this tension. We begin to see this animosity. We begin to see this conflict and we begin to see this judgment happening back and forth. So much so that as we come to these terms of the uncircumcision and the circumcision, we can interpret this as like derogatory comments going back and forth between these two groups at one another, right? 
It's as if like the, the Jewish followers of Jesus are huddled up and they're throwing these derogatory comments at the Gentiles saying, oh, the uncircumcision, right? We can read it with that sort of like gusto behind it. But we can also imagine like the Gentile Christians, or the Gentile followers of Jesus coming together and saying, oh, we're the uncircumcision? I guess they're the, the circumcision, right? And we can feel that sort of energy, that sort of animosity between these two groups. And unfortunately, after 2,000 years of human evolution, we haven't gotten any better at this, right? <laughs> because we can imagine the same sort of dynamics at play uh, right here, right now, um, again, globally and nationally, and maybe even within our congregation, right? We can imagine that those who find themselves leaning a little more right, looking over towards those on the left and calling them something like snowflakes, right? Or we can imagine those on, who lean a little to the left, looking to those on the right, calling them ignorant bigots, right? Like we still do the same sort of thing where we take the totality of somebody, the complexity of somebody, and we deduce them down into one identity marker and assume that we know everything about them. Now, to give us a little bit of grace on this, we don't have a whole lot of say in this thing that happens in our brain. <laughs> Social psychologists tell us that our brains do this thing called the cognitive miser. So our, our, our brains uh, have these cognitive abilities, the, the ability to take in information, interpret information, process information. But our brains have like a limited capacity to do this. And so our cognitive miser begins to sort out like what's important, what needs the most of our attention, and what, do, what isn't important and what doesn't need the most of our attention. And so uh, one of the ways that our brain uh, deals with having this cognitive miser is it, it, it creates these categories, these labels, these boxes, so that we can go on autopilot, so that we can dedicate the majority of our energy towards important things. So perhaps the way that we see this most clearly is like an interaction with the cashier at a checkout at the grocery store, right? You walk up and you know already how that interaction is going to go. Hi, how's your day going? Good, how are you? Did you find everything okay? Yes, good. Conversation may stop there, right? But if you're feeling real energetic, maybe you'll say, huh, the weather's been pretty good today, right? Or, wow, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty busy in here. Is that normal for a Sunday afternoon? Yeah, it actually is. Oh, okay, cool. Nothing else, right? Your brain physically like, stops you right there, and you're like, I don't know what else to say. Like, this is the end of my box, right? And this is good because like, our brains have limited capacity and, like, well, driving home is more important than that conversation, right? <laughs> and yet, we recognize that what our brain's doing here is taking the complexity, the complicatedness of this person who has something like 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years of history and deducing them down to one category of a grocery store cashier. And now we know how to interact with that person. And it's really, really helpful until it's not. <laughs> and when it stops being helpful is when we find ourselves splitting ourselves into divisions where we take the complexity of Gentile followers of Jesus, when we take the complicatedness that is the Gentile followers of Jesus, when we take all of their years of history and deduce them down into one particular label and assume that we know everything about them because of that label, and we can say the same as well for the Jewish followers of Jesus. And maybe we can begin to say that as well when we, when we refer to others as snowflakes or when we refer to others as ignorant bigots or when we refer to others as conservatives or when we refer to others as progressives as well. We have this propensity within us to take the complicated, uh, complex nature of a human being with all of their years of lived experience and deduce them down into one term that we assume we know everything about them. 
And all it does is create these nasty, awful divisions within us. And so Paul begins by acknowledging this propensity within us. And he says, So then, remember that at one time, you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision, by those who are called the circumcision, a circumcision made by flesh, in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at one time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So Paul here turns and he acknowledges the Gentiles, the predominant group within this church community, and he begins to like cut them down. <laughs> You think because you're the biggest population within this church that you can get, start to get a little bit of a big head about it, right? But remember that you found yourself not carrying the mark of inclusion. Remember that at one time you were aliens from the people of God, that you were strangers to the promises of God, and remember that you had no hope and that you were without God in this world. Lest you forget, don't forget that just a few... that. Um, not that long ago, you were on the outside looking in. But in case uh, um, this cutting down uh, boosts up the Jewish followers of Jesus, notice that he makes this little jab at them too. The circumcision, a circumcision made in the flesh by human hands, this thing that felt so important to you, this thing that made you the people of God, yeah, you did it to yourself. <laughs> it might have had spiritual significance, but it was still another human doing it to another human. And again, cutting them down, bringing everybody, Jew and Gentile, onto a level playing field, reminding them that they are all equally without hope, without Christ. So from here, after cutting everybody down, putting them on a level playing field, Paul says, but now. Paul has some brilliant but nows throughout the New Testament, creating a terrible situation, a dire situation, and then dropping a but now and leading us into a hopeful future. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. Paul says to the Gentiles, you who were once excluded from all of this have now been brought near by the work, the love, the teachings, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And notice what he says about Jesus. He doesn't say Jesus is your peace. <laughs> he doesn't say Jesus is my peace. He doesn't say Jesus is the Jewish followers of Jesus' uh, peace. He says he is our peace. There's some sort of common denominator that is drawing us together, some sort of peace uh, common denominator, if you will, that is drawing us together to create something new among us. Now, how does Jesus go about doing this? Paul continues on. He says, for he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us abolishing the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. And he might reconcile both to God and one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. There's a lot of really big, beautiful theological concepts uh, in this passage here, but I'll be honest with you, as I thought about it over the last few weeks, uh, this is the face that I kept thinking of throughout it. Anybody know who this is? Ted Lasso. Yeah, Ted Lasso is perhaps the most brilliant TV show over the last five, ten years. 
Ted, Ted Lasso, the main character here, uh, was a college football coach who brought the struggling team into like national success and became a viral sensation, so much so that he got hired by an English football team. Remember what football is in England, uh, soccer, for those that don't know that, uh, as their coach. So now he, uh, this college football coach, gets hired as a soccer coach in England, knowing nothing about soccer, knowing none, none of the game plans, knowing none of the philosophy, and he's given uh, a team at like the highest level in the world. Now, Ted Lasso is filled with like eternal optimism and filled with like endless amounts of kindness and compassion. Now, as the story unfolds, there's one particularly like destructive uh, player on the team. This player leaves the team and then comes back to the team, sorry for any spoiler alerts here. Um, and the, the, this new player, uh, as he rejoins the team, creates all sorts of conflict. Like, the rest of the team hates him, uh, he hates the rest of the team, and like, Ted finds himself really coaching these two sorts of teams. So in a moment with all of his coaches, he says, it's time to break glass in emergency. It's time to bring out the ace of spades. It's time to bring out lead tasso which is Ted Lasso's alter ego. And if Ted Lasso is filled with eternal optimism and kindness and compassion, Led Tasso is filled with eternal uh, pessimism and filled with all sorts of bitterness and hatred. And so he comes out and starts kicking balls at players, berating them, uh, cutting them down, and making them run endless amounts of laps. After this interaction, somebody comes up and they say, I see what you're doing here. You're trying to create a common enemy to create some sort of like unity among the team, aren't you? He's like, yep, that's what I'm doing. And they said, has it ever worked? <laughs> no, it hasn't actually. <laughs> of, course it doesn't ha of course it doesn't work, right? Because when you try to m make peace by fueling it with hatred, it's only a matter of time before that hatred bubbles over and begins to be redirected back at the two groups that were once separated. And so rather than doing this, what Jesus does is he steps in, not filled with trying to create, not, not fueling his movement with hatred, but fueling it with like overwhelming, eternal, divine sort of love. And yes, while Jesus became a common sort of enemy among these two groups, as we poured out the worst that we had upon him, as we concocted the worst, most painful, most humiliating form of death called crucifixion, as we poured all of that on Jesus, as Jesus hung on the cross, he did something ridiculous. He absorbed it. And rather than deflecting it and sending it back, he cried out, Father, forgive them. And so as Jesus is hanging on the cross, we pour out the worst that we have. We, we, we turn the gun on Jesus. And Jesus takes the gun and not only disables it, disarms it, but he transforms it into something like a shovel and begins to cultivate something that we might call unity or something that Paul might call one new humanity. See, this is more than just togetherness, but, but what God is doing in Christ Jesus is creating a whole new sort of humanity that's forged together greater than our perspectives, greater than our understandings, greater than our preferences, but formed to, forged together in the spirit of God's very self, living and dwelling among us, drawing us together, creating something new called one new humanity. And Paul goes on and says, so then you were no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, with Christ Jesus himself at the cornerstone. 
Meaning that within this church of Jesus, there are no longer strangers, no longer aliens, no longer foreigners, but you are all brought together to be fellow citizens in the household of God with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, the foundation of this. This reality for Paul leads him to go on and say all sorts of absurd things elsewhere in the New Testament, like, for there is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free nor male, nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's something absurd that took place in the life, the death, the teachings, the resurrection of Jesus that creates all of these, that, that um, makes all of these uh, dividing characteristics among us essentially nothing so that we are brought together, forged together with something stronger than these dividing character, er, category, categories that exist among us. That's pretty darn absurd, is it not? <laughs> And yet, this is the big, bold, beautiful vision that Paul has for the church. Now, um, I think we could get caught up and potentially read into this that uh, what Paul is suggesting here is that we just ignore our differences. <laughs> that we sweep all of these differences on, under the rug. That like, oh, if you're a Jew, that's not a big deal. If you're a Greek, that's not a big deal. If you're a slave, that's not a big deal. If you're free, that's not a big deal. Male, not a big deal. Female, not a big deal. But I think that would be to, to misread Paul. Because I think when Paul is talking about this big, bold, beautiful vision of the one new humanity, the beauty of this one new humanity is not that our differences have been overlooked, but that our divisions have been overcome. It's not that these differences don't exist, but it's that the, the divisions that exist because of our differences have been overcome. See, I don't think Paul is arguing for something that we might call color blindness or cultural blindness and ignoring of like, the dynamics that exist between race and culture. But rather, he's, he's compelling us to move towards something even bigger and better and more beautiful than that. Um, author and researcher and theologian Christina Cleveland notes that the idea of a common in-group identity, meaning like the church, <laughs> that would be our common in-group identity. The idea of a common in-group identity that trumps all subordinate or other identities might seem to suggest that we should all relinquish our cultural identities and ignore our cultural differences. Meaning we have some sort of common identity, and so we should ignore all of our smaller identities that might separate us. She says, however, to do this would violate the metaphor of the body of Christ, in which each group expresses its unique perspective and function in coordination with other groups and in submission to the head, Jesus Christ. Exclusion can be defined as erasing or ignoring distinctions. When we don't recognize the differences, the uniqueness in other individuals or groups, we can't be interdependent. It means that they have no significant resources, talents, or experiences to offer us that we don't already have. In essence, the other then emerges as an inferior being who must either be assimilated by being made like us or subjugated to us. Culture blindness or color blindness is simply disunity disguised. It falls short of the unity to which we have been called. See, another image that Paul uses in the New Testament is this, the body of Christ. And he says, who is the hand to say to the ear, I don't need you? Who is the knee to say to the heart, I don't need you? We all belong to this body and we all need each other. We all need this interdependence. And when we, we assume that like, we can all become the same or that we all must become the same, over, or, um, overlooking these differences, we fail to live up to the big, bold, beautiful vision that is the church. 
It's not that our differences have been overlooked, but the divisions that are caused by our differences have been overcome. Uh, and I think it's important to recognize that there are different sorts of, well, differences, and there are different levels of complexity with those differences, right? Um, so as, as I think through it and my own sort of difficulty with these differences, um, think about like cultural differences, right? Um, uh, so for example, uh, a couple weeks ago, I went to the uh, pastoral installation at Jerusalem Missionary Baptist Church, church just a couple blocks up. In many ways, it feels like a sister church to us, right? Uh, we've done a lot of different activities with them. And I get there, and at the start of the service, I look around. Jerusalem is a predominantly black congregation, and I'm one of like four or five white people in there. And I was like, okay, I feel, I feel this, right? And the service begins, and they start singing songs, and everybody knows the words, and I'm looking around. There are no words on the screen. There's no words in a book, and I'm like, I don't, I don't understand what's happening here. Then the preacher gets up, and the preacher starts talking, and people start talking back to him, like yelling back at him. And he starts yelling back at them, and I'm like, if somebody sneezes, like, I get really distracted. I don't know how he's, like, keeping a train of thought in the midst of this. And I walked out of there feeling like, feeling like the, the sense of like, wow, that, that was different. Like I felt like an outsider in that. And yet their hospitality was so incredibly warm. And I felt so incredibly like at home, even though I didn't, right? We have these cultural differences and I'm, I can see the beauty despite the differences there, right? But then we have like theological differences and I live in my head 95% of the time. So these are very important to me, right? And we come back to my friend, Jerry, and Jerry lived on the opposite end of any ideological spectrum from me. And we decided at one point in our relationship to like not ignore that, but to like engage in that. And so there was a season of our friendship where we would get lunch regularly, and we would just talk about things, like things that we knew we didn't agree on. And uh, you know, to this day, Jerry is a little more pro-guns and pro-military than I, as a pacifist, would choose to be, right? I'm at the point over the last month where, like, Second Amendment, I don't care. Let's just get rid of that personally, right? How many more people have to die? I'll get off my soapbox. Um, and as we began to, like, hash this out, neither of our minds changed, but I think our hearts did. <laughs> and I think that's more important than any of that, right? Um, but these differences are there. To hold to a pro-gun, pro-military expression of Christianity is a very different uh, approach than from a Mennonite perspective, right? And so we have these very real differences, and we have, to, we have to work them out, right? But then we have one other difference that, I'll be honest, I've thought about it so much this week, and I had no idea how to put it into words, so <laughs> bear with me here. Because there's this expression of this thing called white Christian nationalism, um, it's a, this blending together of um, religion, of God, of nation, of politics, of race. Like, it's this really ugly concoction of all of these things. And by the way, it's behind like, some of the most atrocious things that have happened in our country over the last five, ten years. And yet they claim Jesus. <laughs> and I don't know what to do with that. I know what to do with that. I know to call that awful and ugly and anti-Christ, but I don't know like, what to do with all of this that we've talked about in the midst of that. Um, but what I do know is like, what they do is not difference. <laughs> that's abuse, that's violence, and that should absolutely be called out. Um, 
but they claim Jesus. <laughs> and I, I, I just recognize, like, as a preacher, I can get up here and throw out these lofty ideas and pretend like there's no, like, tension with that. Here's a very big tension, and I don't know what to do with that, so I just want to be honest with it. And yet I hold to this idea that the beauty of uh, the one new humanity is that our differences don't have to just be overlooked, but that our divisions have been overcome. Perhaps it's like our, our splintering and our dividing over smaller things that led to this radicalness so that like, someone can claim Jesus and commit all sorts of terror in our country. I don't know. Maybe there's a better way forward. Dear Jesus, I hope there is. Right. So what do we do with all of this? Um, how, what does all of this mean for us? One of the things that Paul says uh, is that we are citizens of the household of God. To be a citizen means that we hold some level of responsibility to the thing that we are a citizen of. And so if we are a citizen to the household of God, a citizen to the kingdom of God, a citizen to this one new humanity, then this means that we have some level of responsibility to making it happen. So I think two helpful questions for us to wrestle with as we think about this one new humanity is what is drawing us towards this vision and what is pulling us away from this vision? Like what in our life are we participating in that is drawing us towards this vision of this one new humanity where these differences are not overlooked but the division that exists between us has been overcome and we can live in tension with these differences that we might have with one another. But what is in our life that is pulling us away from this vision, sucking us into creating divisions out of these differences rather than holding the tension and trying to be the church together? I think there's an awful lot of things in our life that can draw us towards this and pull us away from this, but I want to suggest one thing that we'd be mindful of moving forward, and that is our language, how we talk about one another. The, the sort of terms that we use when we describe one another. The, 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 the ferocity? The, is that a word? Ferocity? It is now. The ferocity that we, we use when we talk about one another and using these terms like the uncircumcision, the circumcision, these derogatory terms that we can lob towards one another. When I uh, did my semester abroad um, in college, our leader at the beginning of it said, you are going to experience all sorts of new things. And new things will seem weird. <laughs> Do not approach new things by saying that's weird. <laughs> because he knew that language has power, right? And he knew that the language that we use would shape our perspective and our experience of it. So instead of saying that's weird, we said that's awesome. But we carried the, the energy of that's weird with it. <laughs> so we approached new things and we're like, <laughs> that's awesome. But something happened over time where it began to shape our perspective and our experience so that by the end of our trip, when we were presented pig intestines on a plate to eat, when we said, that's awesome, we didn't carry the energy of that's weird. We carried the energy of that's awesome, and I'm willing to try that even though it's probably not going to be very good. It was chewy. Um, <laughs> all that to say, like our language matters. And I want to challenge us when we think about what it means to be part of the one new humanity, that our language matters in that as well. Um, I'm reading a book with the Lighthouse staff uh, by uh, uh, someone named John Perkins. Uh, he's the founder of the Christian Community Development Association. He's a leader in like, reconciliation across the world. And in this book, he has a chapter called Poor Whites, where he as a black man is talking about his experience of growing up in the South and... Um, his interactions with poor whites, 
two groups that find themselves at the, the bottom of the social hierarchy. And he talks about the derogatory terms that get lobbed back and forth between the two. And he says, what we ought to be striving for today is a new language of love and affirmation that will replace these hurtful slights. What if we started calling one another friend, no matter our race, politics, or economic class? Friends. I like that. What if we within the church began to refer to one another as friend? Or perhaps go a little old school even and start calling one another sister or brother or sibling. And not just in times that we like each other, <laughs> but in particularly heated and contentious conversation. What if the first words out of our mouth, rather than snowflake or ignorant bigot or conservative or, or progressive, were sister, brother, sibling? Perhaps at first that might carry with it that same sort of energy of that's weird, but maybe over time that will begin to shape us and form us into this compelling vision of the one new humanity where we actually mean brother or sister or sibling. Friends, the beauty of this one new humanity is not that our differences have to be overlooked, but that the divisions as a result of our differences have been overcome. And whatever lies ahead for us, whether it be... Uh, um, what's happening within our denomination, or whether it be any other source of conflict or difference or tension anywhere else in the world because it's there, right? My prayer is that we wouldn't see one another as an enemy, but that we would see one another as a friend, a sister, a brother, a sibling, remembering that there's something that unites us and draws us together that's stronger than these categories that we create, and that is the, the very spirit of God, <laughs> living and dwelling among us, drawing us, cultivating us into this one new humanity. And to that we pray, may it be so. Amen.